starting a new series. Um, I don't have a sermon series up there. Uh, from here until Christmas, we're going to go through a bunch of different stuff in the New Testament, most of the epistles. Um, we'll be in the next but the rest will be epistles. And we're going to look at problems they were having in the first century. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about a little bit of the culture, a little bit about what's happening then, why the writers of the New Testament wrote to these problems. And we're going to see that much of what was happening then is still happening now. We know these books are applicable to us when we read the Bible, but my my goal and my hope over the coming months is really to see just how, you know, almost, you know, point for point, these things really do affect and can have an impact on our lives. And and tonight, we're going to be talking about excuses. Uh, Tonight, we're going to talk about how even though we try to make excuses and we try to talk ourselves out of things that, um, according to Scripture, at least we don't really have a lot of room to move. And uh, so what I would like to do just to start, before we read the passage, is tell you a little bit about Rome and tell you a little bit about this letter. Uh, as we just have one night, Romans is a big book, and we're not going to go through all of it, just a few verses in the first chapter. Uh, I would encourage you, though, this week to use this as we're going to be in Romans 1 as a platform to read Romans in the this next week. Um, you know, I don't know if many people I talk to, they sort of ask me, they say, how, how, how do you suggest to read the Bible? How do you, what's the best way to go? And I think that when we have a church community like this, it's great to spend the following week sort of processing what we've talked about and how we worship here. And then so that way we're sort of all going through the same thing. And so each week I'll also be encouraging you, um, if you have a separate reading plan or a one-year reading plan, that's fine. But if you don't have a reading plan, and you have no plan, uh, I would encourage you to each week uh, spend the following week, or even ahead of time, as some people like to do, uh, planning out and reading the other scriptures that go around what we'll study. Because as I said, we're just going to be in Romans 1. So this letter, as it seems, was written to Roman people. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Rome, mostly of Gentiles. If you are familiar with history at all, there was a decree in the, around 40, 45, where the emperor kicked out all the Jews out of Rome. And so the church, as it began to grow in the first century, was primarily composed of Gentiles. Jews came back after a while and, and, and helped, but we have a letter from Paul written mostly to a Gentile audience. And in Rome, many people uh, come from, if they were Roman, come from a polytheistic tradition, meaning they worship many gods. If you've been to Rome, you've been to Greece, they were very similar. They have all these temples for all the different gods and, and all this different way of worship. But their understanding of gods was very different than ours. See, when we think about religion and God, we think about God sort of intervening. We have to be moral and we have to do certain things to please the gods in our day-to-day life. But the Romans didn't quite believe this. The way they saw their gods was that as long as we go and make a sacrifice, as long as we go and do whatever we can when we're supposed to do it, the gods don't care about it. So, so I make my sacrifice, I go to the temple, I do what I'm told, and then the rest of the time I do what I want. It, to be honest, it'd probably be a lot easier that way. Um, but what this, what this did was it led to a philosophy where people sort of thought the best way to live life was to not make waves and sort of live a small, simple life. Uh, but then as time went on, what happened with Roman culture is it became more and more hedonistic where people began to say that, you know, we should live for more and more pleasure and more and more things and more and more indulgence because the gods don't care. 
And, and so Roman culture began to get more and more away from what we would just call morality. And so in the first century, they're kind of in the middle of this bell curve, going more and more towards immorality, if you will. And this is the culture Paul is writing to. People who come from this polytheistic religion where there's not a lot of rules day to day, and now in the early church, trying to follow what the disciples called the way. Who is this Jesus guy and what did he teach? And so that's where we find our text tonight. So if you would, please follow along in your, your Bible or on the screen. And we're going to read verses 16 to 25. So please follow along with me in Romans 1. And this again is the Apostle Paul. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you ever wanted a thesis statement, you know what a thesis statement is, you know, you start your paper with kind of a synopsis. If you ever wanted a thesis statement for the Apostle Paul, it's probably verses 16 and 17. This is kind of what Paul was all about all the time. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, and it's a gospel of righteousness, and that the righteous will live by faith. And the Apostle Paul basically mentions three things here, but as Christians, we all sort of have to agree on. You know, he's writing this letter to the church, and he sort of lays it out to begin with, and he says, hey, church, you need to understand this. You need to believe this. And he says, first, it's the power of God that brings salvation. It's first and foremost. You gotta, it, it's nothing you can do. It's nothing you say. It's, it's, it's the power of God that is seen in you. And whether you believe that you know, it was predestined from God or whether it was a choice you made to follow God, either way, it's God who is doing the power of the saving. And that it's for all. For the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the first thing. The second thing he says that's important that we need to all sort of understand is that the righteousness shown to us by God is offered to us by faith. That God has revealed this to us and that it's offered to us by faith. And then the last thing is that it's good from the first to the last. It has been good and it will be good until the end of the days. This offer of righteousness. And he even quotes 
people that like Jesus but not God, right? They'll say Jesus was a good teacher. He loved people. He cared for the poor. But the God of the Old Testament was evil and violent and mean and sadistic. And that's just not the case. But Paul actually quotes one of the prophets and says, the righteous will live by faith. It's Habakkuk 2 4. And one of the reasons he quotes this is because in the Old Testament it was the same. If people believed that God would save them, that God would save them. And that God would have mercy on those who came to him humbly. And so if you look at Paul's argument, he starts basically to the Roman church saying, We need to understand these things. We need to understand that it is God who is saving us, that our righteousness will be attained through faith rather than works. And that it's been good since the beginning, and it will be good and offered until the end of time. But then he goes into the opposite. See, he sets up those who propel truth and those who propel God believe. And then he goes to the opposite in verse 18, 19, and 20. And he says, those who suppress truth with wickedness. He even uses this phrase that we really don't like, the wrath of God. And it's really uncomfortable. You know, speaking of Roman gods and Greek gods and then sort of the culture at the time, I sort of picture like the throwing the lightning bolts and a really angry God. But the way he's writing it is very intentional because he's contrasting what we believe with what happens when we don't believe. We have these things and this is what we agree with, but just so you know, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Verse 18. There will be wrath and judgment at some point. And when we hear the word wrath, we often think of human wrath. Like that God just finally is going to lose his temper and explode and have some sort of tantrum. Uh, like, like a child and just get really angry and break everything. Um, that's not what this is talking about, I don't think. When the Bible talks about the wrath of God and the day of the Lord, the phrase that uses all the time in the Old Testament, what it's talking about is God fulfilling his purposes on earth one way or another. And so when it says that there's going to be wrath of God, what he's talking about is God's righteousness as a means of justice for those who practice wickedness. For those who oppose the truth of God, there will be a means of justice dispelled by God. And if you think about Paul's argument, what he's saying, how he's doing this, he knows they're religious. He knows these people have a background of worshiping gods. And he says, listen, what happens is, is you know the truth. You've been told the truth. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in church reading this letter. You've been told the church, the truth, excuse me, you've heard it. But you've let wickedness creep into your life. You've let evil creep into your life. You've let all of humanity and all these people around you and your neighbors telling you, no, 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 it doesn't matter what you God thinks. I mean, as long as you worship God on Sunday or Saturday, you can do whatever you want during the week with this different ideology. But Paul says, no, I'm not. He, he emphasizes this very clearly that those people all have seen that God has made this plain to everybody and everyone is without excuse. You know, when it comes to evidence of God, this is a tricky one, right? If you ask the average person, what is the evidence of God? I don't think they would know how to answer that. Do you have any evidence of God? We're all made very differently. Um, and, and what is a compelling argument to you may not be a compelling argument to someone else. But I'm going to share with you some of my favorite arguments. Um, and you may think me rather simple after this, so forgive me. Um, but 
This is one of the, and I've shared this with the youth group before, and, and I hope you'll allow the simplicity of this, and we'll talk about what's behind it. But to me, this motion right here is one of the biggest elements, or one of the biggest evidences of God to me. That I can think, and that my brain somehow sends electrical impulses through millions of neurons and synapses down my spine to my shoulder and to my arm, and it's, it tells all these muscles to contract just so, just the right amount so that I can do this. And that not only did God design me so well so that I could do this, but so that I could do this without actually having to exert any energy or really thinking that just would come naturally. And that we can do any sort of physical thing, to me, is really kind of amazing. Now, I don't take it for granted, and it's nature, and it's science, and okay, I, I, there are two things that really I don't understand, but I love reading about. And I've told you about one, which is space. Space hurts my head. When, when Joe, I'm so sad Joe and Jordan Ashla, um, I miss you guys. When Joe was here, if you guys knew Joe, she was an astrophysicist, and she studied galaxies for a living. And when she would start talking about her job, I would get confused at about the third word. But I love talking to her about it because she was so passionate about it. The other thing I love that I don't understand but I love reading about is neuroscience. The way our brains work. So I read some articles about brain imaging. I get on these really bad sidetracks, by the way, when I'm studying for sermons. It takes me way, way off pace. But, so I was reading about neuroscience. And back in 2010, Stanford University in California came up with some new ways to image and, and look at the brain. And I just want to read this to you. It's talking about the brain and just how our brain works for really, really simple functions. It says, in particular, this is from an article published by Stanford. In particular, the cerebral cortex, which is a thin layer of tissue on the brain surface, or just the surface of the brain, just scratching the surface of the brain, is a thicket of profitably branching neurons. And in a human, there are more than 125 trillion. That's 125 with 12 zeros synapses in just the cerebral cortex alone. That's roughly equal to the number of stars in over a thousand Milky Way galaxies. So just in the outside edge of our brain, there's 125 trillion little nerves touching each other, nerve endings, and then synapses shooting all of these little electronic messages to each other all the time, telling our bodies what to do and how to act and how to go forward and how to continue. I don't understand why people say we all just sort of evolved to get to this level of evolution. The, the other one I really like, and again, this is just my own personal evidence of God that really amazes me, is fingerprints. You ever think about fingerprints? Science doesn't really have the answer. For a while, they thought they were better for grip, but it turns out they're not. And, and they don't really know why we have fingerprints. Some people say it's just sort of the evolutionary process, and we've grown this way, and it's just, they just happen to be unique. You know, another thing about uniqueness is um, I used to really love, I used to live in Hawaii, and I used to love seeing the humpback whales. And humpback whales, if you've ever seen them, they stick their tail out before they dive down. And on the tail of a humpback whale, they have their own unique signature of white color on the tail of every single whale. They've never seen two that are alike ever since they've been studying whales. Here's another great one about whales. Their songs, they sing, the, 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 the squawking and squeaking and everything, every single humpback whale has a completely unique song. Every single one has a completely unique 
song and a completely unique sequence of sounds that they use in the in insect underwater. And, and I was reading these articles, and people were saying, well, these things are just sort of random chance events, right? One, one guy actually said that, well, it's like a Monopoly game. If you play a Monopoly game over and over and over and over and over, you'd never get the same game twice. And I'm sitting here, I wanted to scream at the computer screen, but I said, because the Monopoly game was designed by a designer, by an intelligent designer to make this game unique every single time you play it. And when I read this text, I don't want to add too much to what Paul is saying, but when Paul says that no one was without excuse and that God had made himself known to everybody, I think about simple things like fingerprints, and I think God has made us all unique. And God has designed us for a purpose. And that we are without excuse to say, well, I've never heard from God. Well, where is God? I don't want to overstate this, as I said, but I don't think men and women have any right to ask the question, where is God? Because the limit of us seeing God is the limit of us opening our eyes and actually living. And, and Paul, as he goes on, he basically says, listen, even if you haven't heard all these scriptures and everything, you are without excuse, and if you ignore them, you're exchanging truth for lies. Your thinking will become futile, and your heart will be darkened. And as the world increasingly grows and boasts about wisdom and knowledge, they are becoming like fools. I love that verse of the world. They, they think they're growing in knowledge, and yet they're actually becoming like fools. Because it sounds very similar and familiar to the world we live in. That more and more evidence and more and more things come out to where people say that there's no way there could be a God. And I see the same things and think it just reveals more and more God. And maybe that's because that's my perception, that's my lens, I'm seeing it through, but when I see this and I read scripture and I look at my own life and I see and I believe there is a God, that believing in God and seeing God just illuminates the world all the more. You know, one of my things, um, if you hang around me long enough, you'll hear, you will hear me say the phrase, it can be nonsense. Um, I, I joke about hippies all the time, but one of the things that really does bother me about hippies when they always talk about nature and how great nature is. You know, I remember one time I was sitting waiting for some food. Uh, this was years ago when we lived in the U.S. And, and I was sitting waiting for some food and I had just come back from a trip where I went surfing. And they get to talking with someone waiting for our takeout order because in the U.S. they actually have this thing called small talk where you can talk with a, an employee of an establishment and they're friendly. It's really nice. Um, but so, Anyways, sometimes you're in a restaurant, you don't want to. So I was talking to this person while I waiting for my food. And they asked, I said, what do you do? And I said, well, I just got back into town and I was traveling. And I said, well, what were you doing? And I said, well, actually, I was, you know, I was in Hawaii and I was surfing and, and some, of the, some other things. And they said, oh, I always wanted to go surfing. I would just love to do something so spiritual and connect to nature. <laughs> and I'm not someone who, who, who evangelizes a lot. I don't share my faith a lot. I probably should do it more. But I just, it's one of those situations where I, when someone says something like that, I love to ask follow-up questions. And so I just remember asking them, I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, you know, I just, 
they were snowboarders in, in Colorado. And they said, you know, I just love snowboarding. It makes me feel so close to nature and spirituality and all of these things. And they said, don't you feel the same way? And, and it was one of those situations where I can't hold my tongue. No. I said, when I surf or when I ski or when I hike, when I bike riding, when I'm in nature, it doesn't make me worship creation. It makes me worship the God who created that thing. Why in the world would you stop one step short and worship the creation rather than the creator? I mean, according to scripture, us worshiping creation rather than the creator is idolatry. It's not just missing the point, it's actually sinning. And yet this world thinks that being in the mountains is just this great spiritual conquest. No, it is worship of God and God is revealing himself to people. And yet they're exchanging truth for lies. They're suppressing truth with wickedness. Because even though they're not actively sinning or doing something evil that they think, they're suppressing what God has put in their hearts and what God has revealed to them. One of the goals, I think, you know, I don't want to hyper-spiritualize everything, but one of the goals, I think, of, of the enemy and of evil is to, to normalize the things of God. And we always think that these things are okay. It's not that bad. At least they're not objectively evil. But when I read this, I see Paul very clearly saying, hey, if you take the truth God has given you, you replace it with that which is not from God, you are suppressing the truth. You are holding down the truth. You know, I'll never forget one of the first Bible verses I memorized when I was in high school, when I became a Christian, was 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthian church, he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And it's an oversimplification, and there's more we can talk about with it. But when I think about it simply, I think we there's very clearly in Scripture good, and there's very clearly evil. And God desires that we would look and seek after Him. So then the question sort of becomes, that what is wicked? What is, what is evil? What do we need to watch out for? It's pretty simple. It's basically the Ten Commandments. You know, we know those things. We know it's injustice, it's manipulation, it's abuse, it's sexual sin, it's pride. It's so many things. And yet these are the things that become normalized. And these are the things that for all of history, people have rebelled against God with. Now here's the thing I want to point out. If you just look at this and you just read this, you think, okay, well, here's another pastor saying all of these things, sort of just saying you have to be holy and you have to be perfect, and no one here is perfect, and so why try? This is why I had Matt read that passage from the book of Matthew. Jesus, when he goes to the Pharisees, he tells them, listen, Pharisees are religious leaders, and he says, you guys don't get it. In fact, you cling so much to your religious rules and your religious order and your, all of these hoops you make everyone jump through that when you actually get a convert, they become more of a son of hell than you are. So each time you get a convert, they're actually worse than the generation before because you've taken religiosity and religion and rules and have-tos away from worshiping God. And so we almost have this pendulum where if we suppress truth on the one side, we're not doing what we should do. But if we get too religious and we get too held up and we make too many rules, we miss the point just as much. In fact, you probably miss the point worse because the religious people should know better. Because the religious people are reading the scriptures. 
And they're the ones who claim, as Paul says, although they claim to be wise in verse 22, they became fools. So this is what I want to show you. This is how I want to sort of wrap up tonight. What it comes down to is this. I met with someone this week, and, and it's someone going through a hard time in his life, and, and, and we were talking in my office, and, and we were just sort of chatting about it. He said, how do I know? How do I know if something is from God, and how do I know if it's not? How do I know it's not my selfishness and my pride wanting something? It, 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 maybe I thought it up, and I'm trying to convince myself in the back of my head that it's from God, because I should really want to do that thing. I want to share with you two different things that are really helpful because these are based on scripture and these are based on, on historical examples we find from scripture on how we can know how to avoid wickedness or not suppress the truth, okay? So in the spiritual formation world, we, we study monks and we talk about different histories and, and faith traditions and there's two different things that these monks a couple hundred years ago came up with. Two words, desolation and consolation. And basically all that means is desolation means going away from God, and consolation means bringing us closer to God. Okay? So these monks came up with this list. I just want to show you these. Um, I can send these to you if anyone's curious. But these are things that indicators of things. If something happens in our life that maybe might be suppressing truth, these are some things that might happen as a result of that. You know, they talked about this idea of if something happens and God has revealed something to us, that it'll, if it's not from God, I mean, It'll turn us into ourselves. It'll drive us down into spiritual, you know, deeper into our own negative feelings. It'll actually cut us off from Christian community rather than help us join in Christian community. It makes us want to give up on things that used to be important to us. It kind of makes us apathetic. When things lead us away from God, they take over our consciousness and they crowd our vision of what God is doing. And when it says it covers up all of our landmarks, it's like we talked about the Joshua, the stones of remembrance, remembering the great things God has done in our life. When something brings us away from God, when we get sad, when we get discouraged, depressed, we forget about the things God has already done in our life. And it drains us of our energy to move forward in life. Whereas the other side, if we go to the next slide, it directs our focus outside and beyond ourselves. So we're no longer selfish human beings. Things that lead to God's truth lift our hearts so that we can see joys and sorrows of other people around us. And instead of separating us from Christian community, that which is from God actually bonds us closer to our human communities and Christian communities. It generates new inspiration and ideas. It restores balance and refreshes our inner vision. It shows us where God is active in our lives and where he's leading us. So we're able to see more of God's path for us. And it releases new energy in us. It makes us want to move on into these are really simple terms. They're just called desolation and consolation. Basically, it's a thing that monks have been using for a really, really long time to try to figure out when something happens in life, how do we know if it's from God or not? And this is sort of a discernment process, if you know that word that we could use. You know, and some of these things are presupposed. What that means is, you know, we need to be in community. We need to be in relationship. We can't be isolated, because if you're isolated, how will you ask someone if this is from God or not? It's important to see and be patient and listen to what God is saying. You know, one of the biggest knocks on Christianity, we talk about evidence for God, is the historical example, right? 
Look at all the things Christians have done in the name of God. Look at all the murder and the killing and the abuse. You know, I recently just listened to a podcast on all, some of the racial stuff happening in the U.S. And they're interviewing these white supremacists who are talking about how God loves white people more, essentially. They say, we're Christians and we're white, and God loves us more, and God wants us to be in charge. And they just want, they just want to shout, well, first I want to shout, Jesus was white. And then, I just want to shake them. Like, how could you think that? See, when we allow the truth of God to be suppressed for what we want, it's wickedness. And God has given us all we need, yet people claiming to be wise have become like fools. And yet we have this ability to share the truth. You know, the whole world is seeking truth, aren't they? The whole world wants to know what's behind everything, wants to know the reason for everything. And we have this great ability to love other people the way Jesus loves them, to go and to tell the world, and like the Apostle Paul, to not be ashamed of it. You know, I mentioned Joe, the scientist. I didn't ask for permission to say this, but one of the things I always really appreciated about her is she would say, I am a physicist. I study stars and galaxies, and I am proud to be a Christian. And I tell people that whenever they ask me. And she would say, Christians, people would look at her kind of like sad. Like, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's too bad. And she would say, I just, I don't care anymore. You know, we as Christians, no matter what field we are in, I believe we can learn something from the Apostle Paul as he ministered to the Roman church. And he said, I am not ashamed of this. And I will stand on this truth and I will bring it forth to the world. We're not going to change everybody. People are going to be wicked. If you read the book of Revelation all the way towards the end of, to the end of days and however you interpret Revelation, and Revelation 11 says there's these two witnesses. And they're preaching, and they're preaching, and they're preaching, and no one believes them, and then they die, and everyone makes fun of them, and then God raises them from the dead and tells everyone basically who these people are, but they were speaking the truth, and people still don't listen. It's not for us to worry about. We can only focus on what we control. And I just want to emphasize this. We were given brains as well as hearts and souls. We cannot abandon our heart and soul to just worship the brain and just collect wisdom and facts and try to understand everything. And we cannot abandon our brain only to worship the heart and soul. We need to balance this idea and use all we are to understand how to worship this mystical God, but at the same time see science and see logic and philosophy to help interact with the world. We can't let philosophies and, and these beliefs change the way we see what God has revealed to us. God actually uses us and uses science and uses philosophy and uses all of these ways of the world so that we can interact with the world. Cultural norms and ideas are not always dangerous or evil. They're actually modes that God reveals truth through us, the church. And this is why we must go and be in the world to suppress that wickedness with truth rather than the other way around. Please pray. Lord, thank you. I thank you for giving us brains. I thank you for giving us hearts that love you and, and brains that can study this world you've made. And Lord, whatever it is that motivates us, Lord, whatever it is that gives us evidence to believe in you in the hard times, Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to us. 
And Lord, we're confused when we don't know if something is good or evil or, or from you or not from you. Lord, I pray that you would surround us with men and women who can lead us in the way we should go. That we as a church would unify. Lord, that we as a church would pursue truth and suppress the wickedness of this world. Lord, send us out in the world. Teach us what it means to be your hands and feet. That we would use our hearts and our minds to worship.